makes it like a jazzier part. <laughs> I figure each time we'll dip into a different part of it, you know, because it's uh, that's our that's our th- our uh, theme music, so to speak. It's representative of the way in which you are resisting any kind of structure in your life. Yeah, pretty much altogether. There's no structure no. in my life, and happy. I'm happy. I'm very happy. Right. Well, welcome to um, it's our podcast, right? Yeah, what episode? I don't know anymore. I don't know. We're in the, like, teens somewhere now. I think, uh, well, we did that special Leonard Cohen one last time, because Leonard had just died. Um, And I think that was 14, so I think we're up to 15 now. Okay. I think. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Why does, why, why must we count them, Kate? No, see, you're resisting structure. Yeah. <laughs> My whole life I've been doing I'm this. Not gonna, I'm not going to impose structure on someone who is determined to resist it. Okay. Why would I do such a thing? Uh, because Leonard Cohen's son, you know, put structure on him at the end of his life and, and helped him to record his last album that came out like a week before he died or something. I didn't know that. Yeah. They just put well, weren't you showing me? Uh, um, weren't you showing me uh, something from one of the Facebook um, chat things where some guy who complains a lot about the fact that I'm not on the radio anymore because I'm like the only thing that ever helped mm-hmm. him to get through anything, which I thank him for very much. That I like his comments. Listener Vike, like I think, is his name. Listener mm-hmm. Vike. Uh, I, I assume it's a male. Maybe it's not. Um, and and uh, evidently, the fact that Leonard Cohen's son Adam, I think, is his name Cohen, who is a an, a recording artist in his own right, helped his dad in the last um, year of his life to make the final album that came out just before he died. You want it dark? <laughs> I'll make oh, it. I did I'll this. make it so goddamn dark. That's funny. I'm gonna die from it. Uh, so anyhow, this guy suggested that you should do the same thing, that you should come in. I am doing it. What, what? he doesn't know is this is with all my effort. <laughs> this, this is all we're going to get. This, this is it, huh? I did prop you up. We are, you are in your pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> I did prop you up and just put a mic in front of you. Thank you. Yeah. What this world of podcasts has really taken over, hasn't it? Yeah. It's crazy. Like like uh, your cousin Russell said to me the other day, he said uh, he's like he's long been a, a Sirius XM subscriber, mm-hmm. and he said, um, you know, Uncle Van, I'm thinking about giving up Sirius XM. I said, why? And he said, because I'm so far behind in everything else. Yeah. And I said, like what? And he started not only listing all of the, you know, YouTube and and all of those uh, sites that stream music and everything, but then he started listing all the the podcasts that he listens to. Right. And he listens to dozens and dozens of podcasts. Yeah. Podcasts about television series from the 1970s that guys sit around and, and analyze each episode, you know, and stuff like that and it's like there's so much to listen to out there now well and all the wnyc shows are also podcasts so you can listen to 
traditional, more traditional radio as podcasts? My old alma mater, WFMU. You can does. LA. That was my first podcast. Yeah. That I listened to. All their shows are podcasts. But now I'm, uh, I'm exclusively listening to Rana and Beverly right now. Tell me who they are. Uh, my friend Annie found them. They've been on for a couple of years now. And it's two women whose Rana and Beverly are characters they've created um, that I believe in so completely. I would never want to actually meet the women behind the characters mm. because they're fully f- fleshed out people and they're women and they're, uh, you know, Jewish women in their mid sixties. <laughs> but they're not really Jewish live women. Outside right? of, I mean, I think they are they really are. Jewish women, yeah. but um, I don't think they're in their mid sixties and they don't think that they live in the suburbs of Boston and have very, very thick Boston accents. Mm. But it is just, if anyone needs something uh, soothing, to just really get mm. them through <laughs> these times, I recommend uh, Rana and Beverly. So they're like the the Boston cousins to the New York uh, Oh Hello guys. Yeah, they have a relationship to those guys. Yeah, the Oh Hello Oh Hello, right? Is that oh, what hello. it is? Yeah, oh, that's hello. Probably, right? oh Hello, Nick Kroll, and I yeah. forget the other guy's name. These two comic guys, yeah. uh, actors, and they've been doing it for a couple of years now. On I think Kroll's. Um, yeah. comedy show on television. Yeah. Um and and now they're on Broadway with it. They yeah. play two like septuagenarian upper west side guys who still think that it's 1965, you know, and it's like oh hello and uh it sounds these women sound just like yeah. the exact They're thing. a little these ladies are a little more hip. They're a little more they have a relationship to modernity. Uh-huh. But they're um I just, it's very soothing. I highly recommend okay. Rana and Beverly. Well, I think everybody's looking for... And I'm a Rana, by the way. You're... You have to say, you know, they say, are you a Rana or a Beverly? Oh. So oh, I'm, I'm yeah. A, I'm a Rana. Like, in are, case are anyone's you keeping a, score. a Betty or Veronica? Oh, they're, yeah. they're B and R both, right? Yeah. Br- Rana, Rana Beverly, and Beverly. Beverly. <laughs> right? Betty or Veronica. See? It all goes back to Archie, doesn't it? Sure. So I told Russell, I said, yeah, give it up, man. I'm not on it anymore. Why bother? And if you want to hear me, you know, just come over to the house. I mean, you're my, you're my nephew for crying out loud. <laughs> oh, I wanted to um, plug really quick our friend Richard Barone's new album also. I haven't heard it yet. I know. I have a, a copy for you. Oh, yeah? Listen. Yeah. It's called Sorrows and Promises, and it's um, covers of really great 60s classic folk songs and some really interesting stuff he's doing and all kinds of cool duets and guest stars. And um, definitely check that out. Sorrows and Promises, Richard Barone. It's all songs from the 60s. Mm-hmm. Right? All folk, yeah. kind of folky or folk adjacent stuff. Okay. Um, and it's specifically like, Greenwich Village folk scene. So he's been doing a lot with the history around that folk scene. And yeah, those were my uh, my salad days. Mm -hmm. And that was my salad bowl, I guess, Greenwich Village back in the 60s. So looking for things to calm you. um, I have to say that I'm that I'm very um, honored and humbled by 
a lot of the things that I've seen online lately since the election from listeners of mine over the years uh, to the various radio shows and and, uh, internet and uh, satellite shows that I've done where they're they all sort of wish I was on the air because I kind of helped a lot of people through a lot of difficult times over the years. And I'm on, honored by that, but I'm so glad that I'm not on the air because I don't think I would know what to do or say at this point. And I've seen a lot and I've experienced a lot of strange political moments in this country since the early 60s when I first started becoming cognizant of it. And I've never seen anything like what we're going through right now. And I don't know how to how to talk about it because like everything is so polarized and um, everything has been said, (laughs) you know, and we all just keep saying it over and over again. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of lost. So I don't know how you feel about it, but I mean, I know how you feel (laughs) ultimately, but I'm glad that you're finding some comfort and solace in, uh, Things like like Beverly and, and uh, Rana. Well, there's only so much you can think about it in a day. So I think <laughs> it, being stressed about it, I mean, there, being stressed about it all day long doesn't help anybody. So there's only so much action you can take in a day. And, and if you're donating to places, you set up your monthly donations and you let them happen and that is something and if you're a person who makes the phone calls you make your phone calls if you sign petitions you I mean it's I'm much more heartened by the idea of taking these little actions that can at least feel like something and that actually can especially with donations make a big difference if people make monthly donations to Planned Parenthood, a good number of people, um, that has a huge impact. And Mm. I know that the ACLU, um, you know, I liked their Facebook page and they keep posting this saying, this is incredible. We have all these new members. We want to really like let you all know what we do and where your donations go. And Mm -hmm. so if possible you know you do these things and then you stop torturing yourself because there's a difference between letting your stress and your feelings of helplessness motivate you to do something that actually means something you know donate to standing rock join the NAACP do whatever but then sitting on Facebook and reading horror story after horror story doesn't actually help anyone and actually hurts yourself. So I think that the tricky thing and the thing I'm remembering from the Bush years is there's this line between staying educated and staying informed about what's going on and then protecting yourself, Mm. like how you find that balance. Because you don't... There's a certain privilege to being able to say, well, I'm just not going to pay attention to the news this week and I just don't want to hear it. Because if you're able to do that, well, then you're in a position where you can say, I just don't want to hear it. And 
not hear it and live your life. And that's a privilege because some people <laughs> turn off the news and their life is still the news. You mm-hmm. know, they turn off the news. Mm-hmm. They, they can't eat. They turn off the news. They don't have benefits. Yeah, they turn off the impacted. news. They're at Standing Rock getting hit with rubber bullets. Mm-hmm. So, but you, you're not good to anyone if you're so stressed that you're incapacitated and you're making yourself sick and you're miserable. Yeah. And making everybody around you miserable as well. You You can't help the world unless you're taking care of yourself. So I think for me beyond, I mean, right. There's no point in talking about the actual politics of what's happening because it's so insane. It's so outside the realm of, it doesn't matter to say this is, horrible but it's so uh, it's so understating the fact Mm -hmm. so for me i think the issue is just really thinking about how to take care of yourself and feel that you're still meeting your responsibilities to your fellow people and how can you help your fellow people and how can you not waste your time having a really angry Facebook argument because that might feel like it's accomplishing something, but it's not. And it's probably making you angrier and sicker. Mm -hmm. And continuing to work and getting involved in your work. If you're in that part of your life when you're working and you're creative, I mean, I know that you're working on a bunch of different projects now writing and uh, there's the theater piece that you'll be doing in the in the new year yeah. with elevator repair service both uh several pieces where you're acting in one in washington right uh-huh coming up soon and then you're you've written a play yeah that they're going to be doing as well, well i think that's the other thing i mean i i caution to say you know just look into your look at your work and look at your life and look how you treat people because that sounds so self-obsessed to say, well, you know, that doesn't sound like an outward gesture, but it is in the, at the end of the day, you're only responsible for, you can only control yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at the work that you're doing and the ways in which that can be doing something positive. And also, you know, with the Facebook thing, if you're looking at the way that you talk to people and the way that you have dialogue and the way that you listen, that's actually all you can do. You can't force other people to behave any way other than how they're going to mm-hmm. behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the thing for me about this moment is I think... um I mean, we're never powerless as long as we have control over the way that we each behave and the way that we each take stock of how we impact the world. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a wise and 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 well thought out position. It's good. So let's so let's let's finally finish what well, what we've been doing with um the the biographical the vin biographical stuff on the podcast mm-hmm. we've been talking about my very first work in commercial radio 
after FMU and some of the non-commercial stuff, BAI and and uh, working at Poppy Records for a while back in the late '60s, and uh, we're up to the point where I'm at uh, WABC FM, WPLJ, which was my first job in commercial radio and big time New York City radio back in 1970 mm-hmm. and the uh before we did the the Leonard Cohen podcast the one before that which I think is number 13 we talked a lot of, about it and this this wild thing happened where I was talking about this guy Alan Shaw and we actually heard from his son yeah. right we got an email from Alan Shaw's son yeah it's so cool Alan Shaw was like I always thought of Alan Shaw as being a grown up you know, sure. a, like much older than 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 me. He probably wasn't all that much older than me. Maybe he was thirty. Yeah. You know, right. and, I, <laughs> and I was twenty one or something. But you know, he was the vice president in charge of uh, the ABC FM network. You know, and so this guy was listening to the podcast. It was Alan Shaw's son. He heard it. Yeah. He heard us talking about his dad, and he wrote to say his dad is still. Yeah. Still working in radio somewhere and, and, you know, still doing management or something. Didn't he say that? I, think. I don't remember now. Yeah. I, I don't think. have it in front of me. Anyhow, there were a few stories um, and just some moments that uh, that I wanted to to talk to you about and tell, yeah. share with You've you. We've got a couple of good stories we want to make sure to share. Yeah. The one that I've been thinking about a lot lately is... Uh, the one that concerns Bob Dylan because of, you know, the fact that Dylan's been in the news lately with this um, uh, Nobel Prize for Literature that he's been uh, awarded. And I've, I've, uh, since I started listening to Dylan, I've been a Dylan acolyte. He's been one of my main sources of inspiration and, and information and, uh, guidance and solace and all of those things, you know, right, right from the the beginning in 1964, or thereabouts, when I first got turned on to him. Uh, so Dylan's an important figure in my life, and it's his. People say to me like, "Well, who's the most important artist?" You know, you you think, you know, it's always it over all these years, it's always come back to Dylan, and I've. I've met him a couple of times very, very, very informally to the point where, you know, there were 50 other people in the room meeting him at the same time. You know, so it's not like I don't know him and he doesn't know me and and like that. But Dylan, at the time I was at PLJ, 1970, late 70 into 71, he was, I guess he was back living in New York at this point after he had gone off to live in Woodstock for a while, you know, in the mountains outside of Woodstock and start his family and and be a, a, a real homebody, you know, after the motorcycle accident and, and the amphetamine uh, Penny Baker don't look back, you know, era of uh, intense touring with the electric band and getting booed in places and all that stuff. And he couldn't, he found that he couldn't live in Woodstock anymore because people were constantly invading his privacy. You know, people were like showing up and appearing in the bedroom where, you know, he's like, 
he's like in bed with his wife and a baby. And suddenly there's somebody in the bedroom looking at, you know, he's just like, he writes about this in, in, uh, in his book. Yeah. Um, in the Chronicles, uh, you know, it's just remarkable. He, and he just, what he says is he wanted to be a private citizen. He had removed himself from the world, but he was the God to all these crazed fanatics out there. I mean, I've never been like that with uh, with regard to Dylan. It's just I'm one of the millions of people who just considers him a great poet and, you know, person. Yeah. So uh, he was back living in New York on, what is it called, Washington Muse, I think. It's that little private block sort of right on... Uh, it's the first block, like, north of Washington Square off Fifth Avenue. Mm-hmm. I think it's called the Muse. It's not private, private. I mean, mm-hmm. you can walk down the Muse. But it's you got to have some money, I guess, to have a place there, even sure. back even back then. And uh, just this this quaint cobblestone sort of alleyway. And uh, and he was being haunted then by by the that guy, the garbage guy. Uh, what was his name? can't think of his name now there was a guy who who was sort of on the outskirts of the yippies who went and um would would find his garbage every day literally uh, out in front of the the house where they were living yeah and, and he would go through his garbage go through to, dylan's garbage yeah the dylanologist i can't think of his name now weber weberman anyhow i i and him i knew i had talked to him a couple times on the radio he's a real crazy you yeah, know, totally off the wall guy who wanted to prove that Dylan was a junkie and Dylan was this and Dylan was that by by examining his garbage. Uh-huh. And, and he was like uh, the first doctor of gar- garbageology. You know, he was like trying to put a new study into the world. A.J. Weberman. A.J. Weberman. That's his name. He's a crazy bastard. So anyhow, that Dylan was back in New York, and there would be sightings of him every once in a while. And uh, I knew this guy who was connected to Dylan, whose name was Terry. And Terry's nickname was One-Legged Terry, because he did, in fact, have one leg. Now, <laughs> how he had... He, no, he well, on a pirate ship? Yeah, well, I mean... How he lost his leg, there were different stories at, sure. and at different times. He had either been in Vietnam, uh-huh. you know, and had lost it there, or it was more, uh, you know, he was in a car accident or, you know, illness or whatever. But somehow he didn't have a leg. And I, I vividly remember being in the the second apartment where mom mom and I lived, um, in the one in Montclair, right, where our friend John lived right next door, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I vividly remember a day when Terry was staying over and uh, we were just sitting late at night getting ready to to crash and, you know, smoking a little dope or whatever. And and uh, Terry started taking off his, his leg, his false leg. And I looked over your mother. I don't know if she still remembers this, and I doubt if she even remembers it. And she just had this horrified look on her face, like, oh, my God, what is this? And I, I was probably pretty horrified, too. I had never really seen anything like that. And he, Terry was just this jolly, happy, crazy guy, right? Uh, so I'm at PLJ, and 
the word goes out that they're they're going to audition some people for a new um, talk show. And they were very much interested in having this talk show relate to uh, New York City politics. This was long before there was anything like the right-wing radio, you know, guys or anything like that. Talk show was talk shows back then were mostly like about, you know, th- entertainment and theater and lifestyle and polite conversation. I mean, it was <laughs> you know, talk talk radio back in the very civilized. Late, yeah, it was very civilized. It was you know. Husband and and wife teams having coffee in the morning <laughs> with a microphone <laughs> in their Park Avenue apartment, right, like know? in radio days. Yeah, I mean, it really was like yeah. that. It comes from someplace, right? Yeah. So uh, Terry was involved in this uh, loose scene that Dylan was also involved in. That was like this sort of radical Jewish community there was a guy he was a rabbi named i believe this is this is his name meyer kahani or kahan and he was a very radical zionist as i recall but you know a new york guy a new york jew and and uh uh was in the zeitgeist and so terry was involved on the periphery of that see i think what terry was was a drug dealer (laughs) <laughs> That's honestly, I think he mm-hmm. was Dylan's pot dealer. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know that for a fact, but uh, it seemed like he always had, <laughs> sure, <laughs> he always yeah. had good stuff, okay. you know. Uh, so, so Terry somehow got it so that Connie could come up and audition for this talk show that they were going to put on the air, and. The word got out that there was going to be like a, f- a few people invited in. They, they had a they had like a big studio that was used for multi guest shows that was mostly used by ABC AM at the time, you know, for the Sunday morning talk shows and news shows and whatever. But every once in a while, we the FM station would use this studio for um live performances like there's one i want to tell you about with randy newman that Mm -hmm. sticks out in my mind so it's just a big room and there's enough room for like a little bit of a gathering of people so there was going to be an audience there for that night and terry started the rumor that dylan was interested and that dylan was going to come up to be a guest? No, not to be a guest, but just to come up and watch. Okay. And listen, because he was interested. This was in that period when he was exploring many different cultural and religious and spiritual and political areas, right? He was like a wide open uh, sponge just absorbing stuff after the madness of the 60s. So because Terry was our friend... All of us who worked at PLJ, ABC FM, uh, we kind of figured he was telling us when he said, look, we just keep quiet, but I think Bob's going to come up, you know, because we would all pitch Terry 
because we knew Terry had an in with Dylan. Yeah. You know, like, do you think, you know, Bob would ever come by and be on my show, you know, it's now that he's back in New York? So, say, we got to be cool, though. We can't tell anybody that he's going to come just to be in the audience, just to, to watch this thing. So the word, of course, got out, you know. And then the night of this audition, when this, this rabbi comes up, Kahani, and some of the people from his organization come up, and he's got some people who he's going to debate, and he's, you know, going to do it as, a, as an audition for a talk show. All of the, like, clerical people, secretaries, all of the uh, people who work in the non-talent area of radio all had gotten word about this possibility that looked pretty close that Dylan was going to be there. And this was in that period when a Dylan sighting was still like, you know, Dylan was still important enough to that counterculture, to many, many, many people in the counterculture, so that a sighting would be like, you know, seeing a god or something, you know, and to be in the same room with him. So, oh my God. And like, so the people like from ABC are looking around at this crowd in the studio, <laughs> Studio A, I think it was called. Like, what's going on? Why are all these people, what, what, you know, what? And we're all like, oh, we don't know. There's a lot of people interested in <laughs> in Jewish, uh, you know, <laughs> radical politics, I guess. You know, it's New York. Come on. And uh, I'm sort of in and out of the the room while they're setting up for it. And I finally come back in the room just as the show was about to begin. And I, I look over. There was a big, beautiful, grand piano in the room. And sitting on the p the bench was was Dylan. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was definitely Bob Dylan, and I'm like, oh my gosh, really? Terry was right. He did. He came, and everybody was being cool. You know, New Yorkers are always very cool about. You know, nobody was bothering him. Nobody was going. You know, right? Just everybody kind of looking out the side of their mm-hmm. peripheral vision at him, and uh, I kind of sidled over until I eventually found myself in a position where I was sitting down on the piano bench right next to him. Now, I don't know what what was discussed in the show. <laughs> I don't remember anything about the conversation. There could have been, like, violent arguments going on at the little desk where the microphones were, but because I was totally unaware of anything. Right, because who was the guy in conversation with? You don't even remember. No, he was. It was somebody who he was debating okay. about. You know, whatever his Zionist position was. I don't know. I was sitting next to Bond. <laughs> yeah, you know? it was like, and and I I was I was in I was in heaven. I was in a different world. I was like, I can't believe that I'm. You know, in this room, sitting next to this, and it wasn't even that we. You didn't like push someone off the bench. No, no, like... no, no, no. I just <laughs> I managed to just be in a position where it was sure. comfortable enough for me to sit down and be there. <laughs> and when the thing was over, he he got up right away and started talking to some people, and he was gone. I never got to 
introduce myself or anything. I was just starting out, really. You know, I wasn't any kind of, hi, I'm Vin Scalza, and, right. and somebody would know who I was and go, oh, yeah, the guy on the radio, what's Allison Steele really like? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It was, um, I was still like the kid in the candy store. And here I was in 1971, sitting next to Bob Dylan on a piano bench in a studio in uh, Midtown Manhattan. And that was, um, to me, that was like, you know. Well, it might be one of those things where, right, talking to him almost couldn't even live up to your own idea of oh, yeah. what oh. an interaction with him could be like. Yeah, I mean, I... The only time that I ever tried much later on in life was in the very late 90s where I actually tried through some people at Columbia Records to get Dylan as a guest. And I even got so far as I didn't speak to his manager at that time, but... I knew that the radio guy, who was like the national promotions guy for, for Columbia Records, had spoken to him and, and really, you know, pitched the whole plan. It wasn't until that point, so many years later, that I felt like I even was in a position to talk to, you know, like right. I wasn't, I was willing to put up with my nerves, right. you know, to, to go ahead and do it. The other guy that I never wanted to interview who was another hero was the aforementioned Leonard Cohen. You know, I was just, and that was more like I was just petrified. I was terrified mm -hmm. to meet him because he seemed like he was just so smart and so in touch with deeper things that I wouldn't even be able to keep up, mm -hmm. you know, with him. And you heard in the last, podcast that i i did okay and he was <laughs> he was charming he was beautiful he was very down to earth as i've as i've said but yeah no if i had actually talked to dylan then it who knows it wouldn't have yeah yeah i did finally get to talk to him just a little bit several years later when i was at wnw in the i guess mid 70s maybe 74 four, five, somewhere in there. It was, um, he came back out on tour with the band and they were, I'm pretty sure it was with the band in 74. It was before he went out on that big road, um, the Rolling Thunder review, before he went out on that real crazy road trip thing that he did. And uh, everybody from, from NEW went out to Long Island to the Nassau Coliseum to see him. And we were, we were um, all brought backstage after the show. And I remember sitting around and um, him asking us, because we were the DJs from WNEW. We were the, we were the, the, the musicologists. We were the, the mavens, the, person, the people who knew. I remember him asking us, asking us about um, this guy Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, he's. I remember him saying, "He said, well, you know, is this guy the real deal?'" No. Yeah. And what did you say? And we said, 
it wasn't just me. Yeah. He asked the, yeah. all of us. And mostly it was Dave Herman's ear who he had because yeah. Dave had interviewed him once for a, a long-form national radio show. And Dave said, oh, yeah, he's he's the real deal. He's not you, but he's, you know, he's the real deal. That's So amazing. it's funny. It was exactly like the scene in the Penny Baker film, Don't Look Back, when he's in the car and he's looking in the Melody Maker, the newspapers, and he's talking about Donovan. Yeah. And he's like, is this guy Donovan? Look at, they right. say Donovan's the new Dylan. What's this all about? Is he, oh, ha, ha, ha. He's all, you know, joking with his friends and stuff. And then they meet Donovan in the hotel room. Do you know the, yeah, you know yeah, the yeah, film, yeah. right? And uh, and they're doing a guitar poll. And Dylan sings, uh, uh, well, Donovan sings first. I sing a song for you, a song for you, you know, whatever the Donovan sweet song, right? And uh, and then Dylan takes the guitar and goes, oh, that was pretty good. And, and Donovan says, well, will you sing a song now, Bob? And Donovan grabs the guitar and sings, it's all over now, baby blue, you know? It's like <laughs> totally wipes up the floor. Yeah, with sizing him. up the situation. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I did finally get to meet Donovan years years later at at FUV as a matter of fact, and I asked him about that night. And he, oh yeah, he says he still gets a big kick out of <laughs> talking about it because what else can he do? You know, <laughs> to be uh, to be in that position with somebody like like Dylan back in nineteen sixty five or six, whenever it was. Yeah, and, you know, it was exactly what should have happened, I guess. Oh, and the other thing, you know what? You know, what? I I remember just now one thing about Dylan was that it, it was obviously the dead of winter because he was wearing like a shearling kind of jacket, you know, leather with fur and stuff. You know, you know those kind of yeah, like a wool. Yeah, I don't know, like some kind yeah. of heavy duty shearling coat that was like knee length. It was real long, and uh, one of those like. Like Russian hats with the flaps, with the the flaps were up, you know. Yeah. And I and he never took it off, <laughs> and it was, it was it was like an hour and a half in this room, you know, and it was it got hot after a while. He never, he didn't sweat, and he didn't take off this heavy coat and hat. Maybe he was part of like his disguise or something, or maybe his very low, naturally low body temperature. Oh, I never thought of that. So, uh, so, so that piano and that piano bench, New York radio and radio in general, up until like the post-World War II years, was full of live music. That's what radio, you know, the earliest days of radio was all about, was live music. You know, when you talk about Radio Days, that Woody Allen film, I mean, lots of of the jokey stuff in that film all comes from reality, like the morning radio show with the husband and wife sitting around the breakfast table. Uh, and then for whatever reason, well, the reason, I guess, was economic. After the war and with the rise of rock and roll and with the rise of being able to... Um, have uh, a lot of pre-recorded material readily available it was so much cheaper just to play recordings 
than to hire entire orchestras and, and pay for them and chorus groups and, you know, all kinds of other stuff, or to do remote broadcasts, which were also very expensive, you know, from high atop the uh, the Rockefeller Center, uh, Rainbow Room, here's uh, Guy Lombardo, and the orchestra, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> um, that all disappeared, and ABC FM slash PLJ was one of the places where it began to make a comeback like it was sort of radical for us to do live broadcasts um one of the first was the elton john broadcast from the fillmore 11 whatever it was 1171 11 1171 or 11771 something like that the, that's the title of the album okay. I, ha- I have the album in there somewhere but they took the date yeah i think it was 1177 i don't know whatever it was it was him it was he was just beginning to break big he wasn't like a huge superstar yet he was just beginning to to break big there elton were maybe john. elton john there yeah. were maybe one album two albums out maybe Maybe Tumbleweed Connection was out. Maybe not. I don't even remember. Um, and he, we, we did this live broadcast. You know, the other O and Os were in on it, so they they cut the expense. It wasn't just a, an ABC show uh, uh, handling the expense. You know, it was the network doing it. Um, but I remember I was the the DJ on the air, right, uh, and. Because I was filling in for Dave Herman, who was the nighttime guy, and Dave was at the Fillmore, and Dave, we we sort of go to Dave, you know, and oh no, wait a minute, it was it wasn't the Fillmore. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Fillmore. It was it was a recording studio. It was A and R recording studio. That's okay. where it was. I think maybe he played the Fillmore that same week or something. Okay, but this was a a private performance with an invited audience of our guests at this recording studio. And so I turned it over to Dave, you know, and on the recording, you can actually hear uh, Dave say, all right, well, that, you know, like, thanks a lot. He doesn't say my name, but you can hear it being handed off, sort of. You don't hear my end of it. You only hear his end of it. Yeah. Hey, what's happening back there? <laughs> oh, Yeah. Okay, man. Thank you. This is Dave Herman, and we're at the A&R Studios in New York City for an evening of entertainment. We have perhaps um, 100, 125 people in the studio to enjoy it here. Would you welcome very warmly those of you at home, those of you here, Mr. Elton John. And I'm back at the station monitoring things and engineering from back at the station. But, you know, I have nothing to do other than to make sure it's on the air. So uh, it was a fabulous show. There was much excitement. And uh, this is a story that continues to embarrass me (laughs) to this day. Oh, yeah. I think I remember where the... I think I just remember where the story's going. After, After the concert ended... For some reason, 
the band and the record company people and Elton's management, everything, they all came back to the radio station. I guess they were going to, maybe he was going to go on and have a live conversation with Dave or something. I don't, I don't remember why they all came back or they were going to listen to the tapes or something. Well, why wouldn't they have stayed at the recording studio to listen to the tapes? I don't know why they came back to the station, but they did. And I was told that they were, they were, coming to the floor where the studio was so i i poked my head out of the studio door and there was this long hallway that led to the elevator reception area of that floor and i saw the door open and several guys walked in and they were clearly these musicians these exotic english musicians right and so i go walking down the hall to meet them and I go up to the guy who I'm assuming is Elton John and I offer my hand and I say, hi, I'm Vin. I was the guy back on the air, you know, tossing it to Dave and Elton, that was just incredible. That was such a great show. It's such an honor to meet you. And and Bernie Taupin, Elton's songwriting partner, said to me, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but this is Elton. <laughs> over here <laughs> i went up because they all looked they all looked like rock stars yeah. from england you know and, and bernie, they all had crazy outfits yeah on. and bernie's not even english i think he's an american i think i mean i know he lives in america now yeah he lives out west somewhere um yeah because they all had like just they were all very flamboyantly dressed and i'm like oh my god i went up to the wrong <laughs> guy and said Great show, Elton. And it wasn't Elton, it was Bernie. But that's one of those stories that was so much more traumatizing for you than, I mean, I'm sure oh, even yeah. Bernie doesn't remember No, of it. course not. Nobody remembers that, but I remember it. <laughs> it says he's an English, he is a, he is English. He is English, mm -hmm. Bernie Taupin? Okay. I just know he lives in America now. So see, you, yeah. you can't tell the difference between English people. I was very embarrassed. Oh. I was, I was supposed to know, you know, and I didn't, and... Well, so anyhow, that that piano, we had um, we had Randy Newman on the air, um, and Randy had uh, was very early in his career. Uh, he had put out an album that was just him at the piano, and he was touring around the country that way, performing that way, and we had him up to that big studio, Studio A, I think was the name of the studio. And uh, we invited some listeners to come, and it was just a it was a wonderful, intimate performance. Randy Newman, and very specifically, the album that he produced with Harry Nilsson called "Nilsson Sings Newman," where he played the piano and it was all his songs, but it was Nilsson yeah. doing the the singing, was one of those things that got me through a difficult period um a year or a year and a half earlier it was sort of before i it was after fmu right 69 but before june of 70 when mom and i got married yeah you know it was that period in between when i was kind of lost and i didn't know what, what i was going to do with my life and i worked for poppy records for a while but i didn't know what else and and i just remember that me and me and Lou, your uncle Lou, yeah, Uncle Louie, 
We just played that record Lou over and over. Yeah, Lou D'Antonio, the late great duck. Um, we would just play that record over and over and over again and bond over it and and be lifted by its spirit and by its um, belief in love and and relationships and home. And, you know, it was just such a gentle deeply um um melodic and spiritual kind of album and it was it was newman you know but newman was known for his much more sarcastic stuff um but i had a deep deep feeling for 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 randy newman and uh i don't remember much about the the his actual concert there but i remember talking with him afterwards and telling him how much the Nilsson album meant and him telling like wild stories about Harry Nilsson, who was this crazy guy who lived in LA, you know, and, uh, flash forward now to the nineties, the mid to late nineties, when I'm back at NEW, like 96, seven, eight, somewhere in there. Uh -huh. And I have Randy on the air with me. And, he comes in and before we actually go on mic, I say to him, you know, I, I was at, I was at PLJ when you were doing that tour with the solo piano tour back in 70, 71, whenever it was. And he goes, Oh God. Yeah. I remember that. We had a long talk about, about, uh, Harry, didn't we? And I said, you remember me there? Cause again, I was right. the neophyte kid. Yeah. Right. And he goes, oh, yeah, you put me at such ease. I remember that. I was so nervous that night because it was New York and I was all by myself. You know, I didn't have a band or anything. And and I, yeah, are you kidding, Vin? And if you'll remember, for my 50th birthday, 50th birthday, 30-year anniversary at the bottom line, that big show, one of the celebrities that they got to wish me a happy birthday was Randy Newman. Yeah. And I was told by the person who got that recording from him that as soon as he heard it was for me, he said, oh, for Vin, anything. Aww. Like, because he, he, all the way back to that night yeah. in 1971, he remembered that we had bonded. Yeah. And I was basically nobody. I was a... N well, it's funny because you couldn't have known that night that he was nervous. It's such a funny thing. Yeah. But it just, that's why it made such an impression on yeah, him. Yeah, right. It felt like a big deal. So to have someone, you know, mm. be kind and be interested and mm -hmm. be really human with him made it such an impression. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I like that. That's my, that's my Randy Newman. That's so nice. And uh, I also remember vividly the day that we received an advanced copy of the first John Lennon solo album, which was which was Yoko Plastic Ono Band or something. It wasn't really touted as a John Lennon solo album, but it was. That's what it was. I mean, Yoko... Yoko's presence was there, I guess, but it was John. It was they they didn't duet or anything like that on that album, and that was what was referred to as the the Primal Scream album because he had undergone this this therapy by this questionable <laughs> psycho guy, you know. It was Primal Scream was the name of the the therapy. Um, 
and that's the album that has God on it, you know, where he says all the things he doesn't believe in. I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. And that has Working Class Hero on it. And it's got that um, mother, you know, it's got all these incredible songs that reveal a deep inner part of him that we didn't know about at all from the Beatles. It was as as grandiose as the Beatles had gotten with Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour and all of that, and as huge and widely popular as they became, there there was nothing in all of that to indicate what he revealed about himself in um, a very kind of almost primitive-like recording in terms of its arrangements and stuff i wish we could play music on this thing but, but well we... they could pause it now and go listen yeah i mean you guys probably own this music or you can you know how to online. find it listen yeah. online i mean it was just remarkable and i remember all of us at, at plj sitting in a in the music library on the, was a separate floor the next floor up from where the studios were not saying a word. They, the guy from the record company brought a disc in, you know, an LP that had a white label on it, plain white label, and all it, all it said was Lennon solo. And it was a, what, what's called an acetate. It was the, made out of a different material than they printed recordings on, usually. You could only play it like two or three times, and then it would start to disintegrate these acetates and it was a way that they 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 got advanced word out about a new recording to radio stations and to critics and music magazines and stuff like that um and it was a way that they were sure that it wasn't going to be um you know copied or bootlegged right. it, it would self-destruct it would self-destruct essentially clever. yeah um so they you know brought the acetate in and we sat down and for however many minutes, 35 minutes or 40 minutes, nobody said a word. There must have been like 20 of us in this room, <laughs> all the DJs from the from the station, and nobody said a word. And then finally when it was over, we were like, you know, dumbfounded. We were like, oh my God, can you believe? We had known that he had undergone this this therapy, this scream therapy. And in this one song, you can hear it where he does actually scream in the, in the song. I remember that as we started to recover from the experience of hearing this for the first time, we started talking about working class hero because it had this language in it. And one of us asked somebody else who was, I guess the music director, what did they think? Were we going to be able to play that song? Cause this was the era when 
you were paranoid that the FCC was constantly monitoring and was going to take your license away for any kind of obscenity or any kind of uh, drug references or any, you know, it was all, it was all paranoia and nonsense. It, you know, it wasn't true at all. Because what, when the song were you guys worried about? Uh, working class hero. And you're so you're so fucking scared or whatever. He uses okay. he uses the word fucking in it. Okay. Um, but it's used as an adjective in yeah. its in its you know normal way. <laughs> um, and it's completely acceptable form. Yeah. <laughs> they hate you if you're clever, and they despise a fool. Till you're so fucking crazy, you can't follow their rules. Working class hero is something to be. And and uh, the the music director said, "Well, we we, you know, we haven't really thought about it yet, but I remember that we played it without bleeping it, without bleeping it for Whoa. for a while, maybe you know, wow. maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, even you know, but eventually it did get to the." point where it had to be bleeped or edited that's or amazing you would never do that today yeah right i don't want well, a radio station a commercial radio station would never play well i think hip-hop radio plays mm -hmm. stuff no no they, they have every song has a radio edit yeah well that's that's bold. i guess it was john lennon and i guess i i think part of the thinking was that our our audience was not going to be offended by that. Right. And the whole thing about the FCC and um, offensive language is is community standards. Right. You know, and, you know, it still exists today. Community standards says that after a certain hour, mm -hmm. certain language can be used on the air or it does matter what the context of the language is. So if it's being used in a poem by uh, the poet laureate of the country, you know, on a talk show, then it's okay because mm -hmm. the context does matter. Or you'd at least be able to try to defend it. Yeah, but That's you know, but 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 back then, our our argument for it was that it was John Lennon. Right. And, you know, and it was so real and it was so raw and it was so honest that how could you possibly be critical about it? Yeah. That was wild. It really was. And then there was the uh, this the same experience with uh, um, having the advanced acetate of... Uh, the Don McLean song, um, American Pie. Yeah. You know, totally different kind of sure. experience. But having that song, which I don't need to tell anybody about, everybody knows what American Pie is. But um, sitting there and playing it over and over again, trying to guess what the references were, huh. you know, who the various sure. real people were that he was sort of uh, metaphorically referring to in the song. And yeah. We wasted a good couple of hours. <laughs> doing that and we would go on the air and play that you know three or four times a day until uh, uh everybody was sick of it and that was long before it became a hit uh -huh. recording yeah because you know? it was it was one of those long songs that top 40 radio 
had a great deal of trouble with. You know, they weren't going to play songs that were over three and a half to four minutes. And, you know, right. gradually that broke down with Dylan, uh, with uh, Like a Rolling Stone, was one of the first big top 40 hits that was longer than that three-minute thing. And gradually over the years in the 70s that went away just as as top 40 radio became secondary to progressive rock radio or uh, album-oriented radio or whatever the words were that you used to, to describe those kind of stations that were my my stations, my, my lifeblood through that period. Yeah. Well, so, so those are my stories. Do you want to tell? We're, but we're going getting right through your stories here. It's good. Yeah, all your PLJ stories. Yeah. Did you want to tell your New Year's Eve story? Since oh. this will probably be our last podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, of yeah. The year that'll give us a little holiday theme to end up on. That's great. Well, everybody knows who Cousin Brucey is. Sure. Right. I mean, there's there's not anybody in America who doesn't know who Cousin Brucey is. I hope not. And uh, uh, Cousin Brucey was at WABC AM radio at the time. It was where he became a big, huge superstar. Um, and, and, and the cousin was famous for being, like, clean cut, you know. I mean, that was his whole thing. Was How much he... older was he? I know he seemed. Bruce seemed like, a man, you know, an old guy. I mean, <laughs> he, I don't know how much older he was. Maybe 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 fifteen, twelve. He must be in his eighties now. Yeah. So he's at least like more than ten years older than sure. me. We'll just wait until you get eighty one. He's eighty one, so he's twelve twelve years older than I am. Yeah. Uh you know, Bruce had this clean cut image where he was uh he was the the older brother of all these teenagers, you know, and he had the sock hops and he had the gatherings and he was always talking about uh, the relatives and, you know, everybody was a cousin. Everybody was related. Was so, that his philosophy? Was that like, that's where the cousin thing came from? Yeah. It was like, we're all connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. All, that's so yeah. sweet. We're all cousins. All cousins. Yeah, that's great. So, so Bruce was... Uh, there was there was there was this strange kind of interaction between the FM DJs and the AM DJs. The AM DJs were stars in their world, and that world was a big world. And we were just beginning to become recognized in a much smaller subset of that world. And we each put each other down i guess when we weren't together you know we, we, both sides would make jokes about each other and whatever but when we were together we 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 acted civil and and i think ultimately for most of us there there came to uh, be a, a mutual admiration society we all we recognized each other's talent right and, and you guys were just the upstart kids. yeah yeah and we had you know, we had the brotherhood of of being DJs um, uh, connecting us. So eventually it got to the point where we were all friends. And it was New Year's Eve 
must have been 71 yeah it was the, the the turn of 71 into 72 probably and bruce was on the air he was on the air on on the am station from 6 to 10 i think and it must have been maybe i don't know 10:30 quarter to 11 i was there i wasn't on the air there was this guy named Mike Turner who was on the air, but I was hanging out for whatever reason. I was either going to be on the overnight or something. I don't remember why I was there, but I was there in the studio. And Turner was this wise-ass guy from Detroit. He was a tough, um, you know, he had that, that Detroit MC5 kick-out-the-jams motherfuckers attitude about things. And he played that hard blues music that the Cocaine Karma Twins on FMU were, were like the same thing. And they were from, one of them was from Detroit and the other was from Chicago. There's that whole Midwestern heavy rock attitude. Yeah. Right? And Turner, I was a little kind of scared of Turner myself. I <laughs> never quite knew what he was doing in radio. But, uh, you know, long-haired, kind of scary guy. And, you know, I was just a little nebbish. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but there, well, we were, there was some pot in the studio because it was New Year's Eve. And uh, the door opened up around 10.30, quarter to 11. And it was Bruce coming in to wish us a happy new year he had gotten off the air at 10 he was you know took him some time to get his stuff together to leave and he was all dressed up so he looked like he was probably going to a party or something you know and uh we invited bruce in come in come on in sit down come on and uh he probably talked on the air even i think mike probably brought him into the on the air conversation and uh the, the joint is making its way around the room. There's more than three or four of us in the room. There's probably about six or seven of us in the room. The joint's making its way around, and it f finally gets passed to, to Bruce. And Bruce takes the joint, and just totally without thinking or anything, he just takes his, this big toke on it, right? And then he's, we're like, Bruce! <laughs> This wasn't on the air. No, this is not on the air. No, and he and he goes, "Oh, cousins, can you imagine? Can you imagine what the president's commission on on anti drugs that I'm a member of would say if they saw me here and now?" And he went and he he just sort of twisted his piece, his headpiece, a, a little bit, just to his like toupee? his toupee, yeah, just kind of twisted it just a little bit. Like to be funny? To be funny. To be like, woohoo. Yeah, woo. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> and we're like, holy shit, Bruce Morrow just <laughs> tucked up just on our Flipped joint. his wig. He flipped his wig, man. And he was on President Nixon's, oh my you know, God. good mental health anti drug commission, you know, was invited to the White House and stuff like that. He goes, oh, oh cousins. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, he was hanging out with the cool kids. Yeah. It was a holiday. Happy New Year. Happy man. New Year, cousin Brucey. That's great. I really like that. Well, very good. Those are some of my memories of working at PLJ, ABC FM, back in 71, 72. Great. 
Yeah. And when, what what station was next? NEW, N-E-W was next. NEW, yeah. All right, so, so as we continue yeah. with the history, we'll move on to NEW. 1973 was when I went to NEW. All right. Yeah. Very good. So we will, uh, if you're listening to this around the end of the year, wish you a uh, happy new happy year. Happy new year, happy holidays. And all that. And um, Take good care of yourself. Do you have anything that you want to promote or talk about? <laughs> or? Uh, I guess it's too early really to talk about yeah. the, the play. Um, yeah, there's yeah. not. There's all kinds of things in progress, okay. but I'll keep people posted. And people can always uh, have a mailing list on my website if you go to kateskelsa.com and I send out uh, stuff to that. So if you're interested, because my book will be coming out in paperback in the spring. Oh, yeah. Great. So, you know, everything happens so slowly <laughs> that it's always like, uh, you know, you know, years before you're like, all right, that's the day. I was wondering about the, the mm-hmm. paperback. Being paperback in April. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Fans of the impossible life. Yes, we're talking thank about. you. Uh, and we have an address where you can write to us at the podcast here, right? Yeah. So if you want to email us, you can email uh, us at Kate and Vince podcast at gmail dot com. And Kate reads them. Yeah. And if she thinks I'm, I might be interested, she we do. <laughs> she sends I read them, them. To me. and they're yeah. always they're, it's always nice to hear from people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can uh, like the Idiot's Delight page on on Facebook. Mm. I always post the new episodes there. Okay, great. Well, thank you, dear. Thank you for all the great stories. Okay, you're welcome. We'll see you next time. Next time, bye. Bye.